Welcome to Flip the Script, your go-to podcast about health disparities. My name is Max. My guest today is Dr. Ben Howell. He's a physician here at Yale University. I'll let him tell us a little bit more about himself. Uh, hi. Uh, thank you, Max, for inviting me to join you on your podcast. As you said, my name is Dr. Ben Howell. I am a primary care doctor uh, here in New Haven. I am also a fellow in the National Clinician Scholars Program. So, Dr. Howell, not too long ago, I had the opportunity to um, take a look at when you took over the NCSP program's Twitter feed, and you were talking quite a bit about um, criminal justice policies and the ways in which those affect um, individuals who are both incarcerated and then after release from jail or prison. Um, do you mind telling us a little bit about differences in the healthcare and the type of healthcare? when people are in the criminal justice system and then once they get out? Uh, sure, and I guess to, to set the stage of why sort of I tweeted that when I when I did is that my research in the National Clinician Scholars Program uh, and here at Yale uh, and frankly before, before joining the scholars program has really been focused on the impact of criminal justice policy on health outcomes. And this is something that I've looked at uh, for a while now and sort of worked with some great uh, mentors and collaborators around this issue. I mean, I think the big take home for me, and, and, and it's a good thing now that this is fairly common knowledge, that we have a mass a very mass incarceration problem here in, in the United States, uh, that we incarcerate more people per capita than any other country in the world, uh, and something that has not always been the case. Uh, starting in the 70s till now, there was like a 500% increase in the number of people incarcerated in America. And so it's something that's very common. Like one, uh, at any given time, there are about two million people uh, incarcerated in prisons and jails uh, in the U.S. with another five million who are on parole and probation, uh, meaning that at least one in a hundred people is behind bars in America at any given time. Uh, and then obviously, I can't do the math off the top of my head, but obviously a lot of people are impacted by this. And, and there is one stat that I found very powerful, uh, that for African-American men, uh, if policies didn't change, one in three of them would have an experience of incarceration in their life. And so it's something that's very common. And then, but most people don't think about criminal justice policy and mass incarceration from a lens of health and public mm-hmm. health. Uh, but I guess I always thought like, if there's any impact of mass incarceration or in, in criminal justice policy on health, because it's so common, it can have a huge impact on our communities and especially disparate impacts on communities uh, that are more impacted by criminal justice policy. So. People of color are more likely to be incarcerated. People who live in poverty are more likely to be incarcerated. Frankly, men. Uh, and so, there's some population sections of uh, sectors of our society who are going to be very highly impacted, their health and their health of their communities. Mm-hmm. Um, to get to your question, which I think was about, I know I went on the little sort of level set uh, about sort of the health uh, of the health impact of uh, people who are incarcerated and after they're incarcerated. Um, I guess there's two things that I like to think about. On one hand, because of our criminal justice policy, we sort of concentrate certain things in the criminal justice population. Mm -hmm. People who have substance use disorder, people who have mental health disorders, as I mentioned, um, certain portions of our community, for better or for worse, people who live in poverty are more likely to experience incarceration in their life. Um, obviously, some of those are demographics, and some of those are actually uh, health um, health determinants that make people ended up in criminal justice settings. Uh, but that means that you're going to concentrate sort of 
infectious diseases like hepatitis C and HIV that go along with um, uh, injection drug use, uh, for example, and substance use disorder, uh, as well as sort of mental health uh, issues and uh, addic- issues of addiction. So on one hand, we concentrate a certain portion of the population that has higher burden of health, uh, sort of um, certain health outcomes in the in the criminal justice setting. On the other hand, I also think our criminal justice policy actually creates health outcomes by the way we provide healthcare in criminal justice settings, uh, and also sort of the the structural barriers that moving in and out of a criminal justice system can prevent or create barriers for people achieving the full opportunities uh, of their sort of maximal health, if that Mm -hmm. makes sense. So once, and you know, you're talking about bouncing back and forth between being incarcerated and being out of the criminal justice system, I'm curious, once an individual is was recently released, um, what are they most at risk for? Sure. I mean, that's a, a, a great question and harkens back to, I, there was a paper by a woman who, her name is Ingrid Binswanger. She's now at the University of Colorado, uh, that she published a landmark paper that it was in New England Journal of Medicine. I think it was 2000 or the 90s. I forget exactly what year it was published. But what they did is she matched people being in Washington State people being released from prison or jail in Washington State and used um, statistical methods to match them to other people uh, in Washington State who were similar by, by demographics and other sort of health, uh, health indicators and tried to see, like, what is the impact of being released from prison or jail. Mm-hmm. And it's a very Im- impressive paper that the risk of dying, the risk of mortality uh, in the first two weeks after being released from prison or jail, I think is 12 times uh, wow. the sort of the matched comparison. So people who are in other every other way, like the very similar people, just the, the impact of being released from prison and that release in the first two weeks has a... And no, we're not just talking about, like, hospitalizations, EDs. We're talking about mortality, people dying. Uh, and that always is very impressive to me. Like, that's a huge number, like 12 times. I think, I'm, I don't remember the exact number, but it's around there. And actually, that impact, she, I think, followed people for two years or two or three years. That difference in the level of mortality persisted even two years after someone's released. And I think it's two times higher risk of mortality two years after, after being released from prison or jail. Uh, the things that she found that were sort of causing mortality... A lot of it, especially in the in the early period, there is a lot of violence, homicide, suicide, uh, as well as uh, mortality related to, to addictions such as overdose, fatal overdose. Uh, but then also there was higher impact of things that we would not typically ex- expect, uh, sort of chronic disease, even cancer mortality was higher uh, following release from prison, as well as sort of mortality due to um, cardiovascular disease and sort of pulmonary disease. So it really is that that episode of being released from prison really has a uh, impact on your health in a way that few things that we do in life, that transition uh, does. So I think that's interesting. Um, and I'm wondering whether that has anything to do with the fact that prison is sort of a controlled system um, where obviously people are stripped of their liberties, sure. but within that system, um, health delivery may be scheduled in a certain way that ensures that perhaps they get for sure a well, certain there, level of care. I mean, that is, that is there's like a point of debate, and I don't know how much we want to get in the weeds, but there are some studies that show that there is a, in a, I don't know exactly the best way to talk about this, but there's a survival benefit of being incarcerated because young men 
normally don't die, ideally. In sort of in, in perfect perfect case scenarios, they don't get cancer, they don't get other terminal illnesses illnesses. One thing young men die from is is violence, sort mm-hmm. of gun violence. Um, most uh, most notably, um, and also sort of motor vehicle accidents and right. things like that. But that's how they die. Um, so there is some data that sort of young men actually who get incarcerated potentially do better sort of in that short term because they're not exposed to the, the gun violence uh, in the meantime. They also, for some people, it's like the first time they get medical care. Right, people. For better, for worse, we don't have a great safety net uh, in this country. You have uh, one thing to know about uh, criminal justice settings is you have constitutionally mandated health care. Mm-hmm. The Supreme Court decided, I think it's Ethel versus Gamble uh, in the '70s, that it's an Eighth Amendment violation to not provide uh, health care in criminal justice settings. So it's one of the few places where you are actually. The, we said the Constitution says you have to provide health care. Nowhere else. Uh, in our in our society, is there constitutionally mandated healthcare? Uh, and because our safety net is so poor in in many settings, people get incarcerated, and that sometimes is the first time they get uh, uh, healthcare. So diagnoses of hypertension, diagnoses of diabetes, things like that are first happen in the in the criminal justice setting. One thing to know about that is the way healthcare is provided in criminal justice settings is very different than the way we do it in sort of outside of that setting. Uh, people, you will, I've definitely experienced people who were diagnosed with, say, diabetes or hypertension were taking a medication and had no idea they actually carried that diagnosis or why they were taking their medication if, if diagnosed in a criminal justice setting. Just because the, the engagement with patients is, it's just such a different setting that there's not the same effort to, to empower and sort of educate and get people to sort of self-actuate around their own. Or their give own agency health. because they're Or give agency, jail. exactly, because they're, they're clearly all their autonomy is taken away from them. They don't, it's not like you go to a pharmacy in the prison and go pick up your meds. Uh, you just get told, like, hey, you have to go to this med line at 9 a.m., take your med, and go back to your cell. So that you're not, like, don't have to go pick up your medications. You don't have to come up with a plan, like, how am I going to take this? And sort of what happens if I run out? You just get told. You just show up somewhere and do something. And you're, you have no yeah, self-efficacy or agency in your, own, in your own health, which I think impacts people that when they transition out, I mean, besides all the things about... Um, if you have addiction and it's not treated, and we can talk about that, um, your risk of overdose is much higher uh, mm-hmm. because your risk of relapse as well as your, is so high and your tolerance is low, especially for opioids. Uh, if your mental health is not well treated, it's a very stressful experience transitioning out. Um, and so that's why the risk of suicide, frankly, is so high. Um, but then sort of if you take the people who have chronic disease, diabetes, they have a highly regulated system where they're told to go, sort of 9 a.m., 9 p.m., go get your meds. Uh, and then they are sort of released from that institutionalized setting into the environment, in, back into the community. And there are requirements that you get a certain number of days of your medication, but there's not a lot of discharge planning. It varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. But in general, there's not a lot of discharge planning like, oh, you will go to this doctor on this date. This is where you can refill your meds. Uh, so people and all the other things they have to deal with when they're released. They have a parole officer. They got to reintegrate into their families and their communities. They have to get a housing. They have to get a job, uh, and do all those things. And you're telling like, oh, also go find a doctor. You know, fill your medications, do all those other things. It just falls so low on people's priorities. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's a. I mean, that's a long way to say it's kind of a mess. There's like a com- lot of things that get in the way of people achieving their best health in that transition setting of transition. Hmm. So specifically for those who have chronic illnesses, yep. do you find that the pitfall 
sort of happened at that juncture where there's sort of lack of transition? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the, um, yeah, I mean, just because the, the criminal justice setting is not about health. I mean, it is about, and frankly, even very rarely is it about rehabilitation. Right. I mean, it's more just about punishment. Uh, punishment and control and saying, like, you did this crime, our society decided you go away, for, you get your rights taken away for this amount of time, and then when you're done, you go back. Um, and because health is not part of that paradigm, like telling sort of someone who's a... Um, like a parole officer, like, hey, make sure your guy goes to a clinic. It's just sort of such a foreign concept. There's just not a system to set up for people to make that transition. I mean, that's why, like, interventions like the the Transitions Clinic, um, which is a, a clinic model uh, pioneered by Emily Wong, who's a faculty here, uh, as long as a woman, Shira Shavit, when they were back when they were in San Francisco, says like, hey, we know these people have horrible outcomes, high mortality, high morbidity, a lot of preventable disease. Maybe we should have a, a clinic system that is just for that that population, mm-hmm. especially people released from prison and jail who have chronic diseases to try to prevent some of that harm. And I do think that model works uh, pretty well. I mean, she's evaluated. They're about, that team is evaluating that, that model, but it, it conceptually it makes a lot of sense. And for those who have issues related to addiction, um, you mentioned that they're much more vulnerable when it comes to overdoses and such yeah. when they then are released yeah. from the prison and I, system. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean this is this is a this is a soapbox <laughs> issue for me because it's just something something that just clearly is like it's low hanging fruit that mm-hmm. we should be especially in the setting of especially talking about opioid use disorder. Uh, so people who have opiate use disorder, uh, who and obviously that is a uh, illegal activity, um, in our, so having possession of opioids and then all the other activity that goes along with having a severe addiction uh, that's not treated means that people with opiate use disorder are much more likely to end up in the criminal justice system. The typical model is you have opiate disorder, you you stop, you obviously are no longer using heroin or your or your drug of choice. Uh, and you go into withdrawal, and you're you just are forced to go through withdrawal, and that's actually the classic model. Uh, and I don't know if, how well you know, but with physical withdrawal from opiates is very painful mm-hmm. uh, and very uncomfortable. But that was the model. Be like, sorry, you know, you deserved it. You're, you know, whatever you want to say about the that model. Um, but they would just force people to go with withdrawal. Not only is that uncomfortable, that doesn't actually treat the addiction. Uh, and uh, it means that if you're forced abstinent from your, your drug of choice, from your opiates, your tolerance goes way down. Uh, and naturally, that means that when you're released, especially if we're not treating you, uh, and your tolerance is way down, your risk of relapse is very high. And you go back to using sort of opiates, potentially say like, oh, I was using X amount of heroin before. I can still use five bags of heroin when I'm released. Your risk of overdose just skyrockets because your tolerance is so much lower. Your network of actually finding people who you trust to provide you uh, with your 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 opiates is sort of disrupted, and so you're just you don't know what you're getting, especially in the setting of, of fentanyl and very strong opiates. Uh, your risk of dying are very high, and I think one stat I saw that sort of like a hundred times the risk of dying from a fatal overdose when you transition out of a prison or jail, mm. like something astronomic. So it's like. So it's clear to me that like, if we were serious as a country about dealing with fatal overdoses from opioids, we have a population that's very vulnerable. We have a period in time which we know they're very vulnerable. Why don't we just treat them with evidence-based treatment for, for opiates? 
Mm-hmm. And in this case means like methadone or buprenorphine or, or also for IM naltrexone or, or uh, intramuscular naltrexone, uh, which is Vivitrol and then buprenorphine is sometimes known, the, the, one of the brand names is Suboxone. Um, but there's a lot of stigma around those medications. Uh, and it means there's a lot of language around treating, uh, replacing one addiction for another, mm-hmm. um, sort of that that's not actually treating addiction in sort of an abstinence frame of mind. Um, but we know in the community that that works very well, reduces the risk of dying from overdose in half, um, and it seems like low-hanging fruit that, as I said before, a vulnerable population at a vulnerable time period, if we just treat them, we're going to see drops in the risk of dying, or sort of the population level of fatal overdoses. Right. So are there no, is there no, I don't know, distribution of methadone in yeah. the prison system or? Well, so the, I mean, that, that is changing. I mean, I think the, the, for better or for worse, I think the rhetoric, at least the, definitely the rhetoric around addiction is changing and whether actual practice is changing, I think, mm-hmm. uh, is a matter of, for debate. Uh, there are some, uh, so one thing to know about criminal justice uh, in, in prisons and jails is that it's not like a, a monolith. There's no one one thing you can say about it. Every um, state has a different correctional system. In some states, every county has a different jail uh, system. And then there's also the federal system. So we're talking about not just 50 different systems. I bet there's like over 100 different sort of systems. And they all get to kind of decide what they do individually. Um, I mean, that variation means that you could potentially have natural experiments where people are trying things, um, but there are some jurisdictions that are doing things to treat addiction. The ones I know about are Rikers in New York City. New York City is a a very large jail. Uh, They actually start people on methadone and buprenorphine uh, there, and I don't know if they've done much evaluation of their project, but they are treating uh, opioid use disorder in that setting. The big one that's making, and just here in Connecticut, there's some small uh, pilots uh, in the ones I know of, definitely in the New Haven Correctional uh, Center, which is the New Haven Jail. People who are on methadone in the community, if they get incarcerated, they will get continued on their methadone. The weird part of that is that there's only, there's actually a limit to how many people will get continued. So I think it's around 40, but if you're number 41 and you're on methadone, you'll just be detoxed. And it's just this weird like system because of the regulation around methadone. They're like, oh, we'll do it for 40 people. We can handle that. But if you're 41, 42, you're detoxed, which seems crazy to me. But that's the way we do it in Connecticut. Uh, I think the biggest example, and I would love to talk about this more, is in Rhode Island. And Rhode Island is doing a lot of great things. Um, I actually had an experience, this, pa- this opportunity this past summer to spend six weeks in Rhode Island uh, with Jennifer Clark, who's the medical director there. Uh, there's a researcher there at Brown, uh, Jody Rich, who's been there for years working in the criminal justice system. And they've been trying to expand treatment for opioid use disorder with methadone, with buprenorphine, for years. Uh, finally, because of the impact of the overdose epidemics, I mean, uh, people, lots of people are dying, as well as having a, a sympathetic governor, they got their opportunity to actually uh, implement a program. And so in 2016, uh, Rhode Island, which is a unified system, which means that in Rhode Island there is only a st- one state in jail, just one one system, the governor said, we're doing this. We're treating we're treating people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what they were able to do is pretty cool. They Number one, people who are already on a medication in the community, if they end up in jail or prison, they get to continue their medication. Uh, that seems like a no-brainer. Like, what other disease do we stop, like like metformin or insulin or like antihypertensive just because you're in a criminal justice. Like just, like that one seems like a no-brainer, continuing people on medication. So they're doing that. They're also screening everybody who gets um, 
uh, incarcerated for opioid use disorder and offering them to start uh, methadone, buprenorphine, or naltrexone. And they, they, the physicians and the patients sort of decide together which one they want to start. Uh, just so, yeah. do you mind explaining? I, yeah. You and I understand, yeah, yeah. but just in case the, the listeners may not be familiar with yeah. the difference between methadone, buprenorphine, yeah, yeah. and naltrexone, do you mind explaining a little bit? Sure. Uh, so methadone honestly has the longest track record. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a full opioid agonist, which means it fully activates the opioid receptor. Um, it's been around for 40 years. We know a lot about it, uh, which is great. Uh, one drawback is it's highly regulated uh, in the in the U.S. You can only, in very uh, discrete settings, um, provide methadone for addiction. Uh, so that's your classic like methadone clinic. Um, drawbacks of methadone is it, it is a full agonist. I think it is more likely there are more risks of overdose. Um, there are some there are concerns about people who. Uh, use methadone and then sort of take other substances and still sort of get high. I'm, I'm less worried about that, but there are is that lingering concern. Um, and uh, it just sort of, because it's a full agonist, sort of risk of overdose and sort of being uh, impaired uh, are, are more likely. And also the system that we provide it is just, is just crazy and sort of creates very large barriers. Uh, buprenorphine is slightly different. It is a partial agonist, which means it only activates the opi- opioid receptor sort of halfway. Uh, which is the benefit is that it it means it's a lot safer. Uh, the risk of sort of using buprenorphine and having a fatal overdose is, if, especially if you're just taking buprenorphine, is very low. Like the risk of that is very low. Uh, it also has a ceiling effect. So and that goes along with that that you can't. I shouldn't say you can't, but the risk of having a fatal overdose from buprenorphine is very low. If you mix it with like benzodiazepines or alcohol or other uh, depressants, the risk goes up, but generally it's much safer. Mm-hmm. Um, the other advantage is that it can be provided in primary care clinics uh, in al- or in psychi- psychiatric clinics, but it can be provided in, not in like a special addiction clinic, like a methadone clinic, uh, but like in a primary care setting. Methadone clinics, you have to go every day. Buprenorphine can be provided where you just go once a week, sometimes once a month, and just it allows for a lot more flexibility and, frankly, a less stigmatized uh, environment for providing uh, providing addiction services. The third medication that is sort of in the in the in the stable of treatment for uh, opioid use disorder is naltrexone, in, in particular the intramuscular injection of naltrexone, otherwise known as Vivitrol. Uh, that is an opioid antagonist, which means it's an opioid blocker. Uh, and it's a very strong blocker, so that means if you were to take opiates on top of that, you would get no no effect. Thanks. Um, just to digress a little yeah. bit, um, <laughs> I want to think about now outside of the prison slash jail mm-hmm. healthcare system and the sort of healthcare system through which non-incarcerated yeah. individuals um, operate within and thinking about what pitfalls are currently present or what barriers in the current healthcare system lead to poorer healthcare outcomes um, for individuals that were that have recently been released. Sure. Um, I think a big one uh, that I, I worry about are is stigma and discrimination. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, obviously, being having being incarcerated is a, a mark that makes people stigmatized. Uh, if you tell people like, "Oh, I was released from prison or jail," that that sort of unfortunately sets to a certain people to have like a certain bias about or what that means about you. Mm-hmm. That is both in sort of actually how individuals interact with you. So I'm sure there are plenty of doctors who say like, "I would never want to treat like a, an ex-con." Like they would just say that. Like, they sort of like that's just sort of not the type of patients uh, I treat. 
and for, and then clearly, I think that's. I think there's a lot of problems with that, sort of reducing people to, for better or for worse, like one of the worst things they've ever done in their life and saying like that one thing you did, sometimes years and years in the past is how I'm going to define you for the rest of your life, really is an unfortunate uh, stigmatizing behavior that I think creates real barriers. On the other side, there's actual real structural barriers uh, that can impact people's health once you have a history of incarceration. Your ability to get employment is impaired. Um, so most, a lot of job applications will have a box, like, are you a, a do you have a history of a, a felony? Uh, and you are obligated to check that box, and sometimes that just means you aren't even considered. Right, uh, remember for, the ban the box campaign. Yeah, I mean, there, to, just to be, there are some debates whether ban the box actually helps or not, but, right. but in general the concept is that, like, if you have a incarceration history, uh, that really impairs your ability to get a job. Mm-hmm. Uh, sure. So the the and the second one is housing. There really is structural uh, discrimination uh, in housing. Uh, like getting Section Eight Eight vouchers can be um, in some some jurisdictions. You can't get Section Eight uh, if you are have a known uh, history of incarceration. Uh, getting food stamps also um, can be excluded from that. And all those things sort of obviously, if you're not can't get a job, can't get a housing, have trouble feeding yourself. Like the, that, all of that together is going to impact your ability to to get healthcare. On top of all the stigma of sort of carrying this mark of a history of incarceration, um, I mean it's a real thing. I mean I think I know, I'd be interested to hear if you've ever heard like in medical settings, for better or for worse, we oftentimes encapsulate people into like one-liners about themselves. Like, oh, this is John Doe. He's a 56-year-old man who has diabetes, something like that. Um, too often people will sort of the one-liner for someone with the history of incarceration is like, this is John Doe, he's a 56-year-old murderer who like has diabetes. And like clearly that is going to set the frame for how people interact with that person. Even though like, and I will tell you sort of thinking about murder is not as straightforward as you would think. Like sort of that can mean like vehicular manslaughter when someone was 15 or or sort of like 18. uh, And that gets encapsulated into like, oh, this is a murderer. But the person's sixty years old, and like, and those sort of things, I think, really unfortunately create barriers for people when they actually interact with the healthcare system. Yeah, actually, I mean, I haven't interacted with that type of situation yeah. yet, but I, I have had one patient, the first patient ever, one during my clerkship year, yeah. was someone with a history of incarceration and was like diagnosed with HIV in the eighties and had hepatitis C. I mean, yeah. they had a whole laundry yeah, yeah. list of of problems but he also went through a serious rehabilitation it was like a social worker yeah. helping other youth with yeah. issues of um, opioid use disorder so i mean he kind of turned everything yeah. uh, 180 but that's but, but you know not the same but you know some it. people but i guess I, I don't know what that person's experience was but you can imagine someone that's someone who like clearly has this great arc this mm-hmm. great story um and then it's sort of building and getting empowered from his story um, but you could still see, like, maybe he has to go, like, get a hip replacement or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you could say, like, oh, the orthopedic surgeon reads on the chart, like, this history of HIV, which has stigma, hepatitis C, and read, oh, like, was, you know, incarcerated from 1985 to 1990 for whatever. And then that becomes sort of how they characterize that person, which is so unfair given, like, clearly um, stories of sort of people are complicated people. Life is messy. Like, why would we reduce them to sort of that just one one label? Absolutely. Um, um, yeah, that sounds like we have a lot of work to do both within our healthcare system, but also in society as large in terms of making sure that there is um, better, um, I guess, 
collaboration between the criminal justice system and the healthcare system, and that yeah. those two can work in concert to... Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I agree. And I think the, the hard part for me, and the, something that I struggle with, is not thinking about... I mean, because I have fundamentally problems with the way we have structured uh, criminal justice policy in mm-hmm. our country. Like, I think we incarcerate too many people. I think Absolutely. it's too um, too punitive. We put away people for too long. And just in a way that does not actually benefit society. Like, and, and so on that, so on one hand, I hold that to be true. Like, we should incarcerate fewer people. But on the other hand, I'm like, oh, wait, I have access to like, people of HIV, hepatitis C, addictions, uh, severe mental illness. There's an opportunity. Sometimes you hear it framed as an opportunity to intervene in the criminal justice setting. And I just think, what I think as a, for me, as someone who thinks about this a lot, I really struggle with, like, making sure that I don't frame things like, ooh, it's an opportunity to, like, treat all the people with HIV. Yes, we should be providing care for people with HIV, mm-hmm. but, like, being careful about, like, oh, no, there's an opportunity. We have a captive audience to, like, really do something. And being careful about, like, still respecting people's autonomy, respecting the fact that, hey, maybe they shouldn't be in prison, uh, and thinking about, like, that's why I like to focus more on the transition out and be like, right. how do we rebuild and support people's lives and, and opportunity for health after they're in prison and jail, and then also, frankly, the communities that they, they're moving in and out of. And it's something just sort of something I think I mean it seems like a small thing, but like reframing the way we think about this like quote unquote opportunity to to intervene as public health. uh, Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah, this makes me think. You know, if our criminal justice system was more about rehabilitation than it is about you know punishment, then I think the framing of rehabilitation and Quote and uh, you know, for lack of a better word, I guess opportunity to address yeah. these serious health issues in concert yeah. um, would sound a lot worse than you know we're gonna punish you, but this is an opportunity to clean you of X, yeah. Y, and Z, right? Like that's yeah, no, I, I agree, and it was just sort of something that like I always challenge myself to think about that, like not to to push myself too much to be like, oh, we got this great chance mm-hmm. uh, to do something, but like wait, number one. and I, another way to think about it um, is that. Too often, when people talk about correctional healthcare, mm-hmm. they're talking about a different class of healthcare. Like it become because we could describe it as correctional healthcare, it's like we get okay with providing substandard sort of provision of care in correctional settings. Mm-hmm. Um, the woman I worked with this past summer, I really it was very powerful. She's like, I don't like that term. What I think about is healthcare in correctional settings, mm-hmm. which means like no, we should just demand the same quality of community, like the same quality of healthcare. However problematic that is in the community, we should be trying to push the level in correctional settings up to that standard, meaning that it's patient-centered, that it's empowering, that we're sort of actually treating chronic disease, that Mm -hmm. we're we're preventing disease, that we're doing all the things that we would do in a non-correctional setting and just making sure that we're doing the same in a a correctional setting. As opposed, too often when you hear about correctional healthcare, as I said, correctional healthcare, that just means like substandard care. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh... You know, they're in prison. we got to worry about security. We'll just not worry about their diabetes as much. It's like, no, that's not okay. Like, we right. need to, like, reframe the way we're thinking about healthcare and correctional settings. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your okay. time. I really appreciate learning from uh, your expertise here. Uh, and I hope to have you back on the pod for further discussion. Uh, hopefully that was, that was helpful. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And stay tuned for the next episode of Flip the Script.